0: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare insurance plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company. They offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.
1: Hi, I'm Will Summer and welcome to The Daily Beast Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at The Daily Beast. My book on QAnon, Trust the Plan, The Rise of QAnon, and the Conspiracy that Unhinged America, will be available in February and is available for pre-order now.
0: And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book, Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything.
1: On this podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world. And how they vote.
0: Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, grifters, and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point.
1: Ho, ho, ho. Ha, ha, ha. Welcome to the Fever Dreams Christmas episode. I'm Will Summer, joined by guest host Sam Brody. Sam, how's it going?
2: It's going good. I have to say, happy Hanukkah. Man. To all our jewish listeners it'll be the fourth night so i know will is a big warrior in the war on christmas <laughs> i gotta be holding it down for my jews here
1: well thank you that's absolutely right so sam you've been monitoring a bit of yule tide the same craziness over at the Turning Point USA convention, AKA America Fest. What's going on there?
2: So I'm obsessed with these sort of mega conservative festivals for so many reasons, especially TPUSA. I love how they like organize like the headliners and sort of the undercard of the festival and who gets placed where. Like we got Tim Pool getting top billing above like multiple United States senators and congressmen. Just like amazing sort of reflection of their view of the world.
1: Like, yeah, we got Josh Hawley, sure, but we also got the beanie guy with a compound.
2: Yeah, exactly. So it's like, yeah, like you think a senator like is cool? Well, this guy has a podcast and he's best known for wearing a beanie all the time. So the other thing about TPUSA too is just like the hype intros that Benny Johnson does, where like you get like some crusty old person coming out or like a crusty young person coming out, and just like the Like, they've got fire shooting out and just, like, these super, like, hype, like, dub tracks and stuff. And it's just, like, I just, I love it. I love everything about it, unironically.
1: Actually, we're going to play a couple seconds of Carrie Lake's intro. Because the thing you can't hear, I mean, this pounding wrestling beat. I mean, people say now politics is like pro wrestling, but this is literally like these pro wrestling intros where you get this beat and like the lasers are going off. I mean, the, and the smoke, the production values behind this are really astounding. And if you consider like, just imagine like a young Democrats convention having this kind of stuff where it's just like, <laughs> boom, like Cory Bush is here. <laughs> bum, 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 bum. <laughs> Mayor Pete is here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So mentioning Carrie Lake, who is sort of in this lost the election in Arizona, but won't admit it purgatory. I was struck by, I mean, I really felt like her speech really seemed like an audition to either be Trump's vice president or at least to sort of retain any relevance within the Republican Party after losing. She did this part where she's like, you know, the media is trying to destroy Donald Trump. And to them, I say, and then she made the kind of obscure FU gesture where you like put your arm over like your bicep and like lift up your arm. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Producer Jesse tells me that's the up yours. (laughs) I was going to say, I mean, maybe it's that I'm not a New Yorker, but like, I feel like I'm not super familiar with that one. I guess it looks a little more polite than the middle finger.
2: That's pretty amazing. And also it does seem like this conference is the venue for a lot of like weirdness around like older politicians telling this group of young people to like be fruitful and multiply and put down the porn. Like Josh Holly literally said, like, you guys need to log off the porn. It's just like, oh boy. Like, oh yeah, that that crowd. You
1: you guys got to stop being coomers. Yeah. <laughs>
2: I I don't know what would be worth using the right lingo or like saying, you guys got to you guys got to unplug the dial up and get off the pornography websites.
1: Well, I think the issue is sort of as we discussed on last week's podcast, the issue is that (laughs) Josh Olley need not worry that people are hooking up at TPUSA conventions. Indeed, according to some influencers, stuff is going down in the lobby of the TPUSA convention. Now, is it in the most family friendly way? Are these within trad wife and trad husband situations? I would say not.
2: Yeah, I always think that's the funny part, too, aside from the, the old people being like, "We, you guys need to start families right now. It's just like, that's happening as you speak, but maybe not in the way you are hoping.
1: Well, speaking of Josh Hawley, who is obviously dreaming of a 2024 run, 2028 run, but I think like Tom Cotton before him, and maybe like Ron DeSantis someday, it just ain't gonna happen. I don't think he's got the swag for it, but but he seems to be kind of, he had kind of a cool outfit at the convention. He was wearing like, sort of like a J. Crew jacket and like a t-shirt, and he was really kind of promoting this idea of his wife as a character tell me about that
2: yeah well holly has said he's not running in 2024 but he is pretty frequently at these conventions and is trying to cultivate following there like if any u.s senator is at any of these things i've, I've found it's usually holly and then a couple others who do come but yeah Holly probably does seem to tweet himself a fair bit and he is sort of going around the halls of the TPUSA convention and like posting photos of his wife doing interviews. So it's, it's an interesting emergence of the kind of senatorial conservative wife guy character. His wife, Erin, is a lawyer kind of come from the same sort of conservative legal ferment that Josh Hawley comes from. So who knows, maybe this is, maybe we're going to see the the emergence of a new kind of TPUSA power couple here. But it's funny that you mentioned the Josh Hawley outfit thing because others have noted this is not like a a vibe that i'm super steeped in personally but that like it's giving the youth pastor as the kids (laughs) say (laughs)
1: <laughs> i think that's very true for folks who are wondering it's a harrington jacket i believe is the term so it's kind of a, a light jacket like a t-shirt and kind of in some kind of dark neutrals it's interesting You feel like these guys you're gonna run for president you kind of have to make your spouse you have to make them into sort of a character and sort of like ideally you have kind of like a badass spouse who puts the libs in their place but in this one like josh holly's just kind of taking these pictures of his wife kind of like milling around the daily caller booth like there's this one picture of her with alex Marlowe, the editor-in-chief of breitbart and it's kind of like that the picture looks like you know when you're hanging out with people and suddenly you're like wait is this person taking a picture like why is their phone tilted up she's looking at him like as he's taking the photo just like wait are you are you gonna post this to your many
2: <laughs> hundreds of thousands of followers
1: the other thing i would say is i mean i was just kind of a, shocked by how big a deal this was i mean this thing was like really sort of feel like even more than in the past i feel like this tp usa thing was a big kind of like the students are out for Christmas break so they can all attend. I mean, this was a a real shindig.
2: Yeah, it certainly looks like it. And I think for Carrie Lake too, there's not a significance. Like this is always in Phoenix. This is the sort of ancestral home of Charlie Kirk. And Carrie Lake and her sort of like whole operation has had pretty deep ties to TPUSA. And so, yeah, I mean, they said it was, I mean, Charlie Kirk said this was the biggest one ever, which I have no idea if that's true or not, but it's certainly not hard to believe.
1: Yeah, I gotta say, I don't know if it's kind of the, I'm eager for vacation or something, but looking at it, I was like, that looks kind of fun. That's what you're into. (laughs) So Sam, moving on. Kevin can't wait. Speaker hopeful Kevin McCarthy is in trouble. You obviously are one of the Daily Beast people who lives on the hill, knows all about it. As we approach kind of the Kevin McCarthy's do or die moment to become speaker, what is going on?
2: Yeah. So as they say, we need to talk about Kevin. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so the election
1: for house Speaker. sorry i'm just cracking up because that's like that's the movie where like in this case kevin mccarthy would be like a like a serial killer or something and all the other members of congress are like oh this is kind of worrying he's like carrying around a crossbow <laughs> did not mean it
2: that way but it just kind of worked so the speaker election is two weeks away when the new Congress meets, and Kev McCarthy is scrambling to get the requisite votes that he needs to get the position. So the, the speakership, for for those listeners who aren't aware, is is unusual because the whole House votes on who the speaker is, even though it's always the leading member of the majority party. Yet every member in the house gets to vote. So that means that you have to get the 218 votes, which is the majority threshold in the House. Meaning that if you have a 223 seat majority, as the Republicans do right now, You really can't, if you're Kevin McCarthy, lose more than like five people, essentially, if you're going to get the job. The problem is, is that five people are on the record out there right now saying that they are not going to vote for Kevin McCarthy
1: for speaker. Sorry, correct me if I'm wrong. So you can't lose four, is that right?
2: I think if he gets to 18, he's fine. If he gets to 18, he's fine. And then there's some other like wonky stuff that we don't have to get into about like other things that you can do to like lower that threshold. But for all intents and purposes, he's in bad shape if five people are out there saying that they're not going to vote for him. Now, some of them are trying to get some concessions and might walk back their opposition if they get what they want. But it's getting kind of nasty in in the Republican conference right now because McCarthy is is really trying to bring it to present himself as kind of inevitable. And it should be said, there's no like other viable contender, really. It's going to be uncharted territory if McCarthy doesn't get it and things are going to fall into chaos. But the kind of interesting thing here that has developed over really the last few days is Trump has endorsed McCarthy, not especially enthusiastically, which has got to be tough for McCarthy, who tried to cultivate Trump so hard that he literally like sorted Starburst, sent him a sorted Starburst that was only the flavors that Trump liked, reportedly. But Trump is out there for McCarthy. And people like Marjorie Taylor Greene are out there for McCarthy, saying that they got to go with him, that he's going to be an ally to conservatives. And you've got this weird dynamic where other people who are also super pro-Trump, like Matt Gates, are extremely anti-McCarthy. And Lauren Boebert actually appeared with Matt Gates at the TPUSA convention where everything happens and also expressed her chilliness towards a Kevin McCarthy speakership, which then gave rise to a rare public spat between Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert, which is really, really interesting. I mean, Marjorie Green sort of like dumping on Bobert for almost losing her election and saying that she
1: and Kevin McCarthy had supported her. And let's get into that spat in a second. So the larger thing here, right? So we have like some of the the conservatives, like the ultra conservatives in the House, siding with McCarthy, like Marjorie Taylor Greene. And we have people like Matt Gates, Lauren Boebert not doing it. I understand what Matt Gaetz and Boebert are up to. But what's the, the calculus for someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene siding with McCarthy?
2: It's pretty strategic opportunism, right? Like Marjorie Taylor Greene knows that having Kevin McCarthy as an ally is only going to be a good thing for her. I mean, let's remember that this is somebody who was really, I mean, persona non grata with Kevin McCarthy not too long ago. She came into Congress at the beginning of last year. Really is like a flying the ointment and did all these things when stuff came out about the infamous Jewish space lasers and all these various controversies she'd had and seeming to approve acts of violence against Nancy Pelosi. I mean, she was just a headache that Kevin McCarthy didn't need and a liability for him. And then as kind of time went on, I think she understood that by kind of becoming a team player and using her sway with the conservative movement to boost him, that like if Republicans took back the majority and Kevin McCarthy was speaker, he'd reward her by. A giving her some positions of influence, and maybe seats on committees that she'd like to have. So it makes all the sense for her to, it's so likeliest that Kevin McCarthy is going to get it. It may be way harder than expected, but I think it's more likely than not that he does. And if that's the case, then I think NTG is going to be one of the like key people behind that. And he's going to have to reward her in some way.
1: Very interesting. So this leads into this feud between Lauren Bobert and Marjorie Taylor Green. So this all starts off, as you said, with a video, some remarks Bobert made. Bobert, who, by the way, of course, has just barely made it back into Congress that she made at the Bacchanal that is America Fest. Yeah, didn't mean to get too quickly into this. It's too good. It's juicy. Yeah.
2: I mean, so the backstory is that Marjorie Green and, and Lauren Bobert, I mean, these folks are kind of all lumped in together when in fact it implies that they're allies or close friends or something when they're actually... Not really, and it's been said for some time that Green and Boebert have not always had the most harmonious of relationships, and I think we're seeing that play out here in an interesting way with their differences over McCarthy. So Bobert, yeah, at the TPUSA thing, is essentially going along with she's appearing with Matt Gates and going along with Matt Gates's points that he makes about Kevin McCarthy. Basically, we need to change the way that we do things. This guy is pretty much a status quo kind of guy. If we do elect him to the speakership, we're we're going to need in exchange, some pretty radical concessions to the way that we do business in the house. And, you know, that really took off on social media. And then, you get Marjorie Green pretty much coming in hot with a little thread. And
1: Well, this is so funny that Bobert says, Well, I don't believe in these Jewish space lasers. I mean, that's really like she's getting that from like the Krasenstein brothers or something. These are some hard digs from the left on MTG.
2: So here's what MTG says. So MTG quote tweets Bobert's appearance on Real America's Voice with Gates. She notes that she has and Kevin McCarthy and Trump have all supported Lauren Bover. She notes that she barely won her election, which is true. Marjorie Green says she gladly takes our money, but she refuses to support Trump. She refuses to support McCarthy. She she basically totally, totally gives her the stiff arm. And then <laughs> Bobert responds, basically being like, you guys want me in with this person. I really don't like her. The quote is, I've been aligned with Marjorie and accused of believing a lot of the things that she believes in. And as you know, the Jewish space lasers comes up. Even Bobert is getting in the dig there. So,
1: yeah, she says, I don't believe in this, just like I don't believe in Russian space lasers, Jewish space lasers, and all of this. And I think, in fairness to Bobert, there is, I think, has been a tendency to lump them together because, I mean, they're both women. They're both very the social media bomb throwing. And the Biggest thing is they both had degrees of engagement with QAnon. But I mean, there's a very significant difference between Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is like extremely QAnon pilled and was like getting into the muck about like which Q drops are legitimate and all that. I mean, was really, really into it. And Lauren Boebert, who seems to have seen QAnon as a fun constituency to reach out to, but does not appear to have been like talking about cabals.
2: I think that's pretty much right. And when they both got to Congress, there was this notion that like, People were saying, well, like Bobert is she put together an actual staff like she's trying to do legislation like she picked up some stuff that was kind of boring about like land use in her district and such, whereas Marjorie Taylor Greene was not doing any of that, obviously, and was just kind of trolling. Not to say that Lauren Bobert is the second coming of LBJ and kind of master of the House, but like <laughs> there was a sort of emergent sense that one of these people is is a little more serious than the other. But what I think is so interesting about that is their moves on the McCarthy thing sort of scramble that a little bit. I did not have it necessarily on my bingo card that green would really leverage kind of the strategic situation as it relates to McCarthy to put herself in good position if he does become the Speaker. Whereas Boebert is really aligning herself with the burn-it-all-down crowd and and pushing for this really unprecedented situation to tank Kevin McCarthy's Speakership. And really, I mean, I think most Republicans know that is only going to strengthen Democrats if if they ultimately go there. And it's interesting that Green is not in that crowd.
1: I think it's a savvy move on her part. I mean, she's making a trade-off here between angering people like Laura Loomer, like kind of the Telegram gang. At the same time, she's also distancing herself from Nick Fuentes after appearing at his conference. So she's kind of angering people like this. I saw Ali Alexander was just saying today, like, there's something curious going on here with McCarthy and MTG. I may have to step in, which, okay, <laughs> you know, we'll get that result. But at the same time, I mean, McCarthy needs some, I think, ultra conservatives that he can point to and say like, well, Marjorie Taylor Greene likes me, and so he'll be in her death.
2: Absolutely. And I should say that it's happening across really the kind of ultra- conservative wig of the Republican Party, a lot of these folks have come out for Kevin McCarthy. And that's not an act. I think certainly some of these people realize the strategic opportunity there, but I think McCarthy has really leaned on some of these people to come out and validate him. So it's it's going to be a super interesting dynamic to watch. If McCarthy does end up getting it, which I think he will, you have folks like Green and Boebert who we may think of as being in the same faction, bringing some bad blood into the new Congress.
1: It's going to be really interesting to watch, as you said. I mean, this is like the good stuff for me, is when like the factions emerge and when there's kind of, it's not clear who's going to be the presidential nominee and, and who can enforce discipline and stuff. That's when it gets interesting. Okay, Sam, should we move on to our end of the year awards? Let's do it. Let's do it. Call them the dreamies. So this year, I thought we'd briefly run through some of the highlights and lowlights of the year. Why don't we kick things off? Sam, first of all, we've got the best grift. Do you have any thoughts on this?
2: So not to like be really serious and not fun about this. I guess it is sort of fun, but in a sad way. So I guess just to to take it back here for a second, I was in the room yesterday for the final January 6th committee hearing and... This has been a thread that they've pulled on the entire time, but it kind of got resurfaced again yesterday, where one of the top committee members, Zoe Lofgren, really alluded to the body of evidence they have that Trump's crazy pace of fundraising after he lost the 2020 election and before January 6th, which was spun to donors in all kinds of ways that folks have covered, but that there is a ton of evidence that that money was really just used to help Trump lawyer up in advance of all of these probes and such. And there has been a lot about the griftiness of the Trump campaign's fundraising and the tactics they use and such. But man, if we're just talking about the biggest, most impactful grift, boy. That's a pretty good one.
1: I do think that that's one of the things that really comes through with the January 6th investigation is the cynicism of the Trump campaign's fundraising and this constant effort to say, oh, gosh, oh, man, we're we're almost there. Oh, they're going to steal the election. Give us more money. (laughs) That kind of stuff. My pick is the EES system, which is something I wrote about a few months ago. But essentially, these are healing TVs that have been, quote unquote, healing TVs that have been embraced by QAnon believers and, and all kinds of alt health people. When I discovered these, I couldn't believe it. Basically, it's a sort of screen that plays static and it's supposed to heal cancer and all this kind of stuff. If you get the full kind of the okay, get rid of my cancer set, that's going to run you about 120,000 bucks. But if you have less money than that, you can go to one of their centers and kind of just sit in a room with TVs playing static. This is so obviously fake and yet. It has caught on. I mean, people are people are blowing tons of money. Fortunately, they're not really getting anything out of it. And then finally, I mean, I'd say it's also supposedly related to aliens who may be involved in spreading it. OK, so our next option is our next award goes to our favorite picks for best conspiracy theory. Sam, what do you got?
2: So this is a late entry, but I'm really appreciating the conspiracy that the ancient realm of antiquity did not exist. <laughs>
1: yes, I believe these are some viral TikToks.
2: You guys seen this one? So this is the thing. I'm not on the TikTok, unfortunately. And I feel like I'm like the millennial version of a boomer, like who sees tweets like months later when they're posted on Facebook as screenshots. That's sort of my experience with TikTok is I only see them when they're cross posted to Twitter after being utterly played out. But yeah, the level of detail about the fact that there's people just out here saying like there's no archaeological record whatsoever and just like, but using a different word for that to make it sound really specific and smart and then you get people... people on social media being, whoa, I don't think there is a -a a record about ancient Rome existing. This all sounds really compelling. And to sort of like not try too hard to reach into making this into a broader point, but I think it is so emblematic of something to watch. And maybe this should be my prediction for later, but how TikTok kind of maybe is the ideal incubator and vector for conspiracy theories of just an insane nature. Maybe they don't become part of a a political ideology or have anything per se. But the fact that this social media platform can seemingly gin up just (laughs) out of nowhere, the most insane conspiracy theories is a little disturbing.
1: I completely agree.
0: Six. What about the city of Rome? The city of Rome was created by the Vatican after the Great Western Schism. It was cow fields until the 1500s. Seven, where did we get this information from about Rome then? Mussolini and other fascists. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, those ancient Roman coins? Those are from Phoenicia, idiot. All this kind of stuff that they throw out at you. And I mean, in terms of TikTok, you're right. We talked about this on the podcast before, but this pattern where someone kind of has this approach where they're like, want to hear something crazy? They come off to you like your friend. So keeping things moving along. Most improved player, by which we mean, I guess, the far-right personality. My pick for this would be anyone involved in the Kanye West resurgence. Now, obviously, big thumbs down to that crowd, but the number... <laughs> big thumbs down to that crowd. A harsh condemnation from Will. They're abominable. But but the number of kind of washed up figures who have managed to emerge based on that whole thing. I mean, Tim Pool to a lesser extent, I mean, he's already kind of got his operation going. But I'm thinking of Gavin McGinnis got an interview with him. Milo Yiannopoulos. I mean, Nick Fuentes got to eat dinner with Trump from latching on to it. YouTuber Sneeko, who's kind of an Andrew Tate acolyte who signed on with Kanye for a time. Really, I think everyone involved in that really managed to get a lot more attention based on it
2: yeah that's true and i think surface in milo's case in particular because i feel like right he's been sort of existing at the fringes of whatever iteration that kind of alt-right is in right now and has sort of struggled to get back into the headlines in the way he sort of used to
1: So, Sam, who's your pick for the most improved player? At this point,
2: it'll be clear why Marjorie Taylor Greene. We're noticing her kind of strategic moves and power plays. And this is a far cry from the person who is in a lot of ways a pariah, even within her own party at the beginning of this Congress and even the beginning of this year, really. She's going to have a lot of colleagues who are more like her than not next year. And it's been a pretty remarkable rehab for this figure. So keep an eye on that one, folks.
1: That's a great point. It's crazy to think that it was just recently that she lost her committee seats and all that and was really sort of this outcast. And now she's become kind of a power player in the GOP caucus. Okay, Sam. So I'm going to close with a prediction. And this isn't like that bold of a prediction because this is already happening. But I'm really amazed with the right-wing media in particular's recent adoption of JFK conspiracy theories. So we talk a decent amount here about the JFK assassination. And I think just recently, I was talking about how James Elroy's American tabloid, despite being a novel, tells the truth about the JFK assassination all you need to know. And look, I think it's pretty reasonable to think there was a conspiracy behind it. But the JFK assassination has been in the news because this deadline came for the National Archives to release like sort of all the final files related to it. And instead they sort of punted it. This group of people investigating it, who I find pretty credible, are saying that some of the files that are being held back relate to the CIA using Lee Harvey Oswald as an asset before the assassination. So that would obviously raise some questions. But since that press conference that this group had a few weeks back, we've really seen, led by Tucker Carlson, this use of possible CIA involvement in the assassination as sort of a cudgel to discredit the idea of, like, having a federal government more broadly. I was talking to a Republican gentleman recently, and he was saying this is going to be a big problem for the federal government when this comes out. And I was saying, I mean, I don't know why it's a problem for the EPA if the CIA killed Kennedy 60, 70 years ago. But I do think we're seeing this used, especially as we see concurrently this idea that thanks to the Twitter files, that on the right, this is being taken as this idea, like Twitter, pre-Elon was like an FBI, CIA operation, all this stuff. We're seeing this new like just resurgence of Kennedy conspiracy theories as like weirdly like a Grover Norquist shrink the government tool. Like like we're seeing like Charlie Kirk, where we're seeing a lot of relatively like kind of mainstream MAGA figures just say like, oh, by the way, like what's up on that old grassy knoll?
2: That's so funny. And this is, I feel like such a good example of one of those things that exists really only in the fever swamps, like the feveriest of the fever swamps for such a long time just by sheer force of will. And it must be said, I mean, boomers, Fascination with JFK, like it's like water. It keeps moving. It has to just find new outlet. And maybe this is just part of the reason that instead of being dismissed, this idea somehow just keeps persisting. And now it is like more broadly, people on the right talking
1: about it. It's just really interesting how they can kind of twist these things into whatever narrative is useful. So, Will, who do we have joining us this week? Okay. So here on this podcast, we talk about a lot about the right-wing media. But I'm an old school kind of establishment media sicko as well i love my media news back in dc back in i think 2011 i wrote an anonymous blog about local dc media called dc porcupine which was sort of written from the point of view of a porcupine that was kind of keeping up with all the drama in the dc media like a literal porcupine that was my angle it was kind of a persona i'm
2: a porcupine here's what i think of the latest <laughs> <post on laughs> yeah
1: that. no i mean it, we covered the local npr station all this kind of stuff oh i love that i love that Because of just an abiding interest in the media and the up who's up who's down this week we've got daily beast media reporter corbin bowles he's one of the writers behind confider the daily beast media newsletter which if you don't subscribe to it you've got to it covers both fever dreams topics and otherwise and just i mean really i think is one of the best newsletters out there each issue is just chock full of bombshells you've also got lachlan cartwright and justin barragona who we've had on the podcast before writing it so i thought as the year comes to an end We check in with Corbin on the state of the media more broadly and what's going on.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweaters starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Fevered dreams like all Daily Beast journalism exist because of the generous support of our subscribers, the people who pay for access to Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet.
1: Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, exclusive ad-free newsletters, and our undying appreciation.
0: Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com to sign up.
1: All right, this week on Fever Dreams, we've got Corbin Bowles, Daily Beast media reporter, Manhattan Gadfly, the guy who knows what's going on everywhere from the newsroom to the C-suite, Corbent, welcome to Fever Dreams.
3: Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
1: All right, so we wanted to just kind of check in on the old media more broadly. As we close 2022, I guess my first question is, what is going on with CNN? I feel like there's so much tumult. Brian Stelter got the axe. A couple more people got the axe. People are getting moved around. What's the deal with CNN?
3: It's been a really strange year for this network because you have had... They're much hyped about launch. You had the beginning of the year, which saw Jeff Zucker's ouster, and uh, which caught everybody off guard, caught CNN off guard, prompted a wave of anger there that carried through when uh, Discovery bought Warner Brothers and then turned CNN and then you saw the launch and then sudden axing of CNN plus. And with that came the arrival of Chris Licht. And he's had his work cut out for him over the last seven months or so between trying to earn the trust of international newsroom and then breaking the trust of an international newsroom and saying that there would be no layoffs and then proceeding to lay off a bunch of people. And I think what, where we're at now is a wait-and-see approach. You've, you've seen him make all of these moves, letting some of... It's most high-profile people go. Losing talent in Laura Jarrah going to NBC, Anna Cabrera just leaving. And it's a matter of waiting to see what he does next between who he slots in at 9 p.m., how its morning show does going forward. It's in a bit of a rocky transition, to put it mildly. And so, like, correct me if I'm wrong here, but
2: I guess, like, some of the idea behind this whole shakeup was to get CNN back or more in the direction of being like a destination for hard news and sort of moving away from kind of the opinionated stuff of the Trump era and maybe that there was also a whiff of suggesting that some of their personalities from last few years were too partisan and things like that. I mean, what are you noticing if anything so far in like the coverage? Is it too early to say if CNN has actually started to step
3: towards being like more of a like quote unquote like hard news thing? I mean, CNN does its best when it really has to have an Hands operation when it comes to coverage. So you look at the Uvalde shooting in May. Simon Prokupes has done amazing work in holding officials to account there. And uh, on election coverage, CNN hasn't shied away from calling a lie a lie. Chris Licht had said that it would be his preference for them not to be saying the big lie, and yet that's still been used. Over the election, what I noticed is that even with panels of analysts, as CNN has always had, including during the Trump years, discussions seem to be a bit more thoughtful versus having a conservative and a liberal going back and forth. There weren't these hyped up feuds that they were having on their panels that they would often share on social media. So I've noticed that it has gotten a little milder. I think it's too early to tell what this means for its news judgment. I think that remains to be seen. But on the day to day, you can see that there isn't anything performative about what CNN is doing right now, at least from what I've noticed.
1: On another topic, the Washington Post is in a bit of chaos. Publisher Fred Ryan announced last week that there would be layoffs at the start of 2023. People may have seen some videos circulating on Twitter where they had this town hall meeting and then he said, by the way, layoffs, bye. And everyone was mad about that. What is going on at the Post? I feel like things are not looking that great. I know you are regularly in our D.C. office, so I assume you're getting plenty of scoops on the D.C media as well.
3: Yeah, I had a story out on the Washington Post last night that really captured what many staffers are feeling inside the newsroom nearly a week after this announcement. Fred Ryan has appeared to many staffers to be the true villain of the Post newsroom. A lot of the decisions that have wrangled Post staffers over the last year from the uh, his mandates of coming back to the office or facing disciplinary action. It's laying off of its Sunday magazine staff, out allowing them to get other jobs within the newsroom, it has really angered staffers. United staffers, some of its top journalists, including reporters Josh Dossi, Ashley Parker, Shane Harris, Jose Del real and many others, have joined the union. Which, by the way, can
1: I say? So I used to cover this stuff in a long ago. And the Post Union has this unique thing where a bunch of people were not members of it, and then in this this would really rankle the people who were members. And so suddenly you have this thing where these people are saying like, "Hold up, is this what a union's for?" And so now they're signing
3: on. Yeah, it's very much a, and these are people that the Post Union has tried to recruit for a very long time. And the fact that Fred Ryan is able to anger these large swaths of people in different classes within the newsroom to come together and be like, we are not on the side of Fred Ryan and layoffs and sweeping edicts without much input from its own executive editor. Sally Busby has said that she didn't find out about this until the day before. She was telling staffers two days beforehand that she didn't anticipate any more mass layoffs. And then you have Fred Ryan come at the last second and almost like a horrific version of Apple's One More Thing during their keynote saying, by the way, we're going to have layoffs. (laughs) And it's it, it just goes to show that when you have one person who comes, I mean, Fred Ryan comes from a political background. His mind is very businesslike. Wait, and, well, let's, and, let's get
1: specific, right? I mean, he, he's like a Reagan guy, right?
3: Yeah, I believe he was Reagan's chief of staff. And he comes from this old school mindset in a newsroom that is constantly evolving. The Post has been growing over the last number of years, particularly during the Trump years. And as it's expanding coverage in different areas, including climate, health, it shows that like Fred Ryan, it's still stuck in these old ways to some staffers and there's a disconnect there that's borderline dysfunction.
1: The line you're getting is that they're kind of in this post Trump, this kind of stagnation. It's like, ah, what do we want to do? I feel like they're not getting a lot of like they're not buying Wordle, as it were, like the times. You That are kind of like, at least like something's going on here. You've done a lot of great reporting on turmoil at the post. Our former colleague Max Tanney now at Semaphore had a very interesting item about it, which I thought which featured Sally Busby, who of course is this editor who comes in after Marty Baron, this kind of like the guy, Lee Schreiber played him in spotlight, this kind of towering journalism figure, though he certainly had his problems of his own, but she replaces him. It's kind of a tough act to follow. And now, amid this Fred Ryan fracas, according to Max, she's openly musing about whether to resign she's saying like in these meetings with just like random reporters she's like i don't know you think i should quit and that struck me because i worked for a lot of eccentrics and and i worked for a lot of newspapers that were not doing financially very well i've never had a boss say like what do you think will like let's pull some people at the meeting should i resign what's that telling you corbett is this not a good sign would you say
3: i mean sally busby came to the post during a very interesting time she came in may 2021 In the middle of the COVID pandemic, vaccines were just coming out, and she's having to grapple with a newsroom that was already in a place of transition coming out of the Trump years into what comes next. And it's been hard for her to get to earn the trust of her staffers because as she tries to make decisions, its staffers cause their own issues, whether it's Dave Weigel's retweet back in May and then the whole hubbub over their social media policies. She's having to make these decisions that, from people I've talked to who have known Sally at the Associated Press, she's not used to managing a very large team. She's good at managing smaller teams, but people I've spoken to who worked with her there have have cast doubt on whether or not she's capable of managing a large newsroom, especially with such large personalities that they have at the Post. And particularly over this summer, when you've had fred ryan making these very hard edicts in that max piece you saw that sally didn't even accompany fred ryan to a budget meeting with with jeff bezos in seattle so it shows that she's constantly being carved out of these large decisions and it, there is a there is a real question about whether or not she laughs at the post people at the post like sally busby people at the post do respect her as an editor as an executive editor but it's hard to get a sense of what she wants and what she can do for its journalists, which is constantly being undercut at uh, every large turn.
2: I wanted to ask about the erstwhile Bigfoot of the Post, the New York Times, the green lady, so to speak. And <laughs> what's happening there since two weeks ago, we saw a pretty remarkable a walkout, a one-day strike by Times staffers over there stalled, negotiations between the Times union and management. What's going on there and what have you been hearing about sort of the
3: aftershocks of the strike, other than I guess the
2: people who still play Wordle had to break their streaks if they didn't want
3: to be a scab. I send my condolences to people who have had to break their Wordle streaks. But from what we've reported, The Times understands that they're at an impasse with the union. They've called for a impartial litigator to mediate these sessions because they're not getting anywhere. The union showed a very impressive sign of solidarity in its walkout, and they've threatened a multi-day strike authorization should the Times not budge on some of its talking points. And people I've talked to in the union have said that the union could be a bit more focused in what it's asking for, but what it's, the union believes what it's asking for are things that the Times is capable of delivering based off of its profits that it's earned, based off of its stock buybacks that it's given. The Times has really cemented itself as a as capable in this transformation in a way that the Post has tried to reach but hasn't delivered upon. It's diversified its content, it's made these large-scale acquisitions, and people at the Times feel as though they're capable of honoring everything the union's asking for. The Times believes that the union isn't willing to meet them in the middle, and that's what prompted this call for a mediator. They understand that it's not working. Granted, the Times also now has to contend with the fact that their lead negotiator, managing editor Cliff Levy, is now going to be running wire cutter and other services he's being transitioned out of his role because of the work that he's put into these negotiations
1: yeah i mean i have to say you guys were this was a confider scoop i believe but there was this union meeting where he's trying to kind of flatter one of the union side negotiators and say wow good job on this story and then she says cliff it's really sad that the times management has destroyed your reputation as an honest man and turned you into this dishonest worm i mean i'm kind of adding worm here but (laughs) but my sense is that was the overall tone
3: that meeting which happened in November just really goes to show how contentious this process has been. People at the Times have been talking about a strike since late September. And the fact that the Times has known this and let it get to the point where they were able to have a walkout just shows that there hasn't been much wiggle room between them. They've been trying to meet to get to some type of agreement. They've been negotiating for 20 months. And when you get to a point where one of your reporters is calling you a liar in In a profession, that's supposed to be a beacon of truth. It just goes to show that there's been a significant breakdown between time staffers and its managers. Yeah, and I feel like, I don't know how this influences things, but just the layoffs that are
2: happening elsewhere, I feel like have just so cemented, like there's always been this kind of have and have nots thing with The Times and some of its competitors, but it's hard to see a media company in this environment doing much better than The Times has, yet it seems like they're kind of dug in on where they're at. And I don't know how you see playoffs elsewhere influencing the bargaining talks at The Times, so but I feel like they've got to have an impact.
3: I mean, people at The Times, they're not oblivious to what's going on in media. They understand that Like, news publishers are facing sweeping budget constraints. You saw what happened with CNN, with Gannett, with BuzzFeed. NPR just had to cancel their internship program for next year. And people at The Times aren't oblivious to this, but they also see how much The Times has chosen to invest its money, even as the economy has gotten so precarious. And it's just that they're able to invest in stock buybacks. And as they are able to make these large-scale acquisitions, then they ask the question of, why can't you pay us more? We're asking for wage increases. We're asking for a minimum salary floor. Times minimum salary floor has not reached $65,000. And they understand that it is a lot to ask for, particularly in this state. But as negotiations have gone on for 20 months, they feel as though what they're asking for now is the least the Times can do. Some of the wage increases that they've asked for 20 months ago they got those now it would be worth less because of the state of inflation and it just goes to show how the times has been dragging this out making some of those positions both the unions had and the times has offered different under the state of the economy so that's very much informing what they're asking for and how they're asking for it
1: corbin what's an undercover story in the media it's a story that you're interested in that is kind of stuck in your teeth and you don't think is getting enough
3: attention going back to this point on CNN and Sally Busby. I've been very fascinated as to how much of a mirror image Chris Lick and Sally Busby have been. I don't feel like that's been explored enough because you have these two leaders who come from different successful backgrounds in news, aside from Chris Lick's minor interlude into late night. But these are two people who are so similar in the challenges that they've had set up for them and have both tried and failed to earn the trust of their respective large scale organizations. And I'm really curious to see if that's explored more going into the new year and if you see a similar Disney-type coup where one of them gets ousted by a former leader. Do I think Marty Baron or jean Jeff Sucker are going to come back? Likely not. But you wonder if somebody who could have been a leader of either of those organizations and finally taking the reins.
1: I like the way you're thinking, man. These are some bold predictions. I feel like both of these people are suffering from following very kind of like iconic leaders from their organizations. A little career tip for everyone out there. I think it's always tricky to follow a real like big deal leader. Often it's best to let the other person, the next successor, take the fall. And then someone big kind of you sweep in after people are like, oh, please rescue the institution.
2: No, maybe we need to do a spinoff podcast about Puck.
1: But let's get into it. Let's get into it. So, I mean, a lot of this is also a big year. Like, what are some other media trends this year? I mean, certainly the newsletter boom, I think, is kind of cooling off. There was once a moment where it seemed like everyone was getting a sub stack. Now, maybe a little less so. And we're seeing some newsletters shuttered. But one website that has newsletters and I think is still chugging along is Puck. Now, Puck is a bit of a niche product, I would say. I mean, they might disagree with me. But this is, I'm a Puck subscriber. I mean, this is the thing you read if you want to feel like you're an executive getting the dailies back on movies or hearing who's up and who's down at CNN. I know Sam, however, really has some big thoughts on Puck. And Corbin, I'd be interested in your take as well.
2: I think the New Yorker profile of Puck was super interesting in that, like, I think they would embrace the label of being niche. Like, this is not a general publication where their newsletters sort of open with, like, well, I was sitting having a power breakfast on the west side with one of those real industry bonkers, one of those real guys, you know, the type. That's not a generalized audience. I also, like, have to say that the voice and the editorial sort of style of it is endlessly amusing to me but i'm sort of fascinated with it as this sort of yeah we've talked a lot about like newsletters but this idea that like Particular journalists in this time can be big enough brands on their own that people will shell out a ton of money to not only get their content, but like be on conference calls with them. And like it has really like made explicit this like they have said this explicitly themselves, like we're like journalists are influencers and like we're going to treat journalists as influencers and sort of leverage that for profit. Yet I don't know how that works at a time where like Twitter seems on track to collapse or at least be a shell of what it was before. And in the absence of that, Journalists seem primed to definitely not be influencers in the way that they were before and maybe would prompt people to get subscriptions at a
3: place like Puck. See, for me, when I think of Puck, I think the New Yorker piece captured it really well in terms of its audience. But... To me, I think, especially with Twitter's impending collapse and with its audience being those who live on Twitter, I almost wonder just how long it's sustainable for. The best journalism is journalism that lasts beyond whatever the platform that it first lived on because it's the impact that it has. When you have journalism that's hiding behind not just A, a very hefty paywall, but B, an inbox and C, the name of the journalist who wrote it, you almost forget what that work is, it's hard to find it. I think Semaphore has done a better job of at least being a bit more open to all audiences they say that they hope to launch a paywall within the next year in charge for their newsletters.
1: Semaphore Death Watch, man. That's what I'm saying. The word is out that we're starting to see this semaphore. This of course, Ben Smith's operation. The semaphore is underwhelming thus far. A narrative is starting to take place. I'm not promoting it, but I do think that is out there.
3: You're not promoting it, though. You're just saying it's out there. He's not promoting it. He's just plugging it. But, <laughs> I mean, that remains to be seen, but... At least in its first year, Semaphore has made a name for itself as an institution. It has its own events. It's still trying to promote its journalists, but it first and foremost is promoting the work. They published their first scoops on Medium because they wanted to get the information out there.
1: All right, folks, you know what Corbin likes. Have an event, give him a croissant, and he'll be on board. So Corbin, I got one more question for you. Make a prediction for me. You kind of hinted at this already with this idea that the Bob Iger of CNN or the Washington Post might regain power. Give me one more prediction for 2023 in the media. What's ahead?
3: I am very curious to see whether any top managing editor at the New York Times leaves, whether Carolyn Ryan leaves, a Cliff Levy departs, they just brought in Steve Ginsburg to run The Athletic from The Washington Post.
1: A one-time Post editor-in-chief candidate who got somewhat, I believe, caught up, deservedly so, in the Felicia Sonmez saga. So yeah, just the backstory there, but go ahead.
3: Yes, he was passed over along with a managing editor, Cameron Barr. But I'm curious to see if any top managing editor at The New York Times leaves. I believe that Sally—I personally believe that Sally Busby will stay at The Washington Post, and I'm curious to see what challenges— She deals with and how she responds to them in 2023. I don't know if Fred Ryan is long for the post going into next year. All
1: right, folks, Media Death Watch. Who's going to get the boot? Corbin's putting out his markers. Once again, we've been joined by Corbin Bowles at the Daily Beast, media reporter, the guy getting all the scoops around Manhattan and maybe sometimes in Brooklyn and D.C. too. The Corbin Contributes to Confider, the Daily Beast media newsletter. Corbin, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you. I appreciate
1: it. Okay, so warning, we have some very mild spoilers here for Avatar 2, Way of Water. I should also say that hearing this may induce Pandora sickness, where you wish... Your normal life would end and you could only go live on the marvelous jungle planet of Pandora. Now, Sam, have you seen the new Avatar yet?
2: I have not yet, but I'm looking forward to doing so.
1: So over the weekend, so I have to say, I'm kind of like very deep in the Na'vi universe right now. I had not seen the first Avatar, so I watched it over the weekend. And then on Sunday, I saw it. Did
2: you see the first Avatar?
1: No, hey, it was 2009. (laughs) What else were you doing in 2009? (laughs) It passed me by. And so in a way, I'm happy it did because I'm so into Avatar now. So on Sunday, I saw it. I saw it with 4DX, which is the format where like you're in a chair that like rocks like a roller coaster and it sprays water in your face and stuff. So, I mean, really quite an experience. But I was struck during Avatar by the fact that there's this kind of subplot where we discover that the mineral that we used to care about on Pandora, unobtainium, is now passe. And now what the sinister humans plundering the planet want is basically this sub- substance that you get from killing whales and drilling into their heads and what you get is this bottle and this is a very strange thing because they pull out this kind of yellow vial and they say this is what it's all about here on pandora these days it's a substance that's in the whales heads that holds off human aging now to me It struck me that there's like a very obvious comparison here between that and adrenochrome, the famous substance that supposedly the world elites are torturing children in satanic rituals to drink that's popular in QAnon and the Pizzagate mythos. So I was struck by this and I thought, wow, has anyone else made this adrenochrome connection? And. yeah, they have. So QAnon people <laughs> have been getting pretty excited about the possibility that James Cameron created this movie to sort of kind of blow the lid off of Adrenochrome. So I'm going to read a couple things I found on Telegram and some QAnon chat rooms in Twitter. I mean, to be clear, this one isn't quite blowing up yet. But I think as more people see, as more QAnon people check it out, they're going to say, whoa, this is because instantly I was like, this is Adrenochrome. All right. So here's a guy who tweets, James Cameron just delivered an allegory about Adrenochrome harvesting. Someone else says, these bastards even had to work Adrenochrome into Avatar in this QAnon chat room devoted to the QAnon fellow who we talked about a few weeks back related to it corrupting a minor charge. Someone was giving his review of Avatar and he said, this movie made reference to adrenochrome. The humans were hunting the whale-like species whose brain fluid stopped the aging process. I mean, so there you go. So people are seeing the connection here. What I thought was also interesting is that this is not the first movie that QAnon believers have taken to be about adrenochrome, which for what it's worth is a real thing, but it's sort of related to insulin and is actually very easy to make. It does not hold off the human aging process the whole adrenochrome thing started with fear and loathing in Las Vegas in which someone says this is a rare vial of adrenochrome you can only get this from a pedophile and so QAnon people they look back and they go you know maybe that's real So the idea is that you have to sort of like terrorize a child in a satanic ritual and then they produce this adrenochrome and that's why these celebrities look so good even when they age and why when celebrities started getting COVID, Tom Hanks got COVID, for example, they would say, oh, it sounds like the Q team poisoned the latest batch of adrenochrome. That's why all these celebrities are getting sick or the adrenochrome has been blocked up and that's why these celebrities look so bad in their Zooms or what have you. Another movie that's been tied to adrenochrome is Monsters Inc. right? And so the whole thing with that is they have to terrorize children children to produce this kind of resource, not unlike Adrenochrome. So I think Avatar is going to be pulled into this universe. It's not clear to me whether this will be good or bad for its box office, which I know a lot of theaters are counting on and for James Cameron himself. But I think when I was watching it, I was like, there it is. People are certainly latching onto it.
2: Now, my only question is if this prompts the QAnon folks to do sort of a, a wholesale reconsideration of James Cameron's filmography, like what Q drops are there in Titanic?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, certainly I think there's like a lot of rich stuff to be mined from stuff like Terminator. People are concerned about transhumanism, the idea that the computers are going to take over and and blend us all into computers, that kind of stuff. So I think it's a rich new text, I think, to pour over.
2: I mean, Will, have you ever seen JFK Jr. and the iceberg from Titanic and Stingray? (laughs) I sure haven't. (laughs)
0: On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics to popular culture.
1: We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer, and Kelly is at Kelly Weil. That's W-E-I-L-L. Come say hi. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian DeMeglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's.